Welcome to Martial Wisdom. Here you can listen to conversations on all kinds of topics related to martial arts. In today's episode, we're going to talk about when etiquette in the martial arts goes too far. Joining me in this discussion is Ellis Amder and Stephen Scott. Two major things that I want to mention before we get started today. First, I want to express my heartfelt thanks to the listeners who have donated through the PayPal tip jar. Your contributions are greatly appreciated. It's the love of the martial arts which keeps us doing what we do, and at the same time, it's true for producing the content that I do on this channel. Thank you very much for your support. Second, it's been several years now since I launched the Spirit Aikido online program. Releasing new videos every few days over that time has resulted in a very large library of material. There are currently over 325 videos in the program. This is a great way for you to get training and practice ideas which I've gathered from my own Aikido training, gleaned from other instructors, and taken from other arts. In the most recent series of videos, I covered some of the material that I lace into classes talking about legal ramifications of self-defense, as well as some tactical things that you do that are not just physical techniques. If you've been curious to see breakdowns of how I approach my Aikido on the mat, the videos in the Spirit Aikido online program are the best way to go. You get a great deal of content and help support the show at the same time. I encourage you to check it out. There's a link in the description. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now, on with the discussion. Welcome back to uh, Modern Aikido's podcast and Martial Wisdom. I'm delighted to have two guests on today to talk about this, this topic. Uh, my friends Ellis Amder and Stephen Scott uh, from kind of other opposite ends of the earth for me. So uh, welcome, gentlemen. I'm very much looking forward to our discussion today. Thank you. Yep. Well, Pleasure to be here, as always. Yep. Thanks, guys. Uh, yeah, and the topic is something I've long considered an elephant in the room in the martial arts community, and that is, when does etiquette get taken too far? And I think we've all seen it. We've got some some stories. I, I put out a call on the, the martial, martial side forum a couple of days ago asking people to share their experiences of when they've observed uh, etiquette being taken too far where they feel uncomfortable or they felt like maybe this isn't the dojo for me or the organization for me to be in just because the behavior is getting kind of creepy. Um, and I got some very interesting responses, both in the, the public comments and privately, as well as some of my own observations. And I know uh, these two probably have many more stories even than I do. Um, I think just to start, launch this off, it does seem to me that Eastern Asian cultures are very much based in the uh, a very high degree of reverence for authority and the idea that you never question authority, you are always obedient, uh, you never raise objection or even come to question what, what uh, someone in authority says. Um, you would never defy their command. Um, and I think that this, if you track down, could be a source of some of these things. But what I wanted to talk about today was like how, how that actually comes to fruition in dojos, in organizations where people are uh, made to feel uncomfortable because the ritual and the etiquette has gone has grown to such a degree that it overshadows the study of the art or the practice of the martial art. Um, we'd like to get started on, on maybe their experience. Maybe Ellis, you could jump in with kind of what, what you have. I wanted to have you on the show, by the way, because you have a very strong extremely traditional background in a variety of arts and i'm sure you've probably seen some of the most rigid etiquette of 
of about any practitioner I think I've met. So I'm interested to hear your perspective. Well, I was I was smiling as you started because I was thinking of Ogasawaradu, which is the oldest extant martial tradition in Japan, mm -hmm. and it's a school of etiquette. So it's it's how to behave, okay. Uh, essentially, uh, but just just to start, you know, I, I personally train in a several venue. Uh, I, I I train in two classical martial traditions, two kodyu. I'm in and out of aikido at times. Uh, I've got a group um, which is an adaptation of kodyu for. Um, select groups we call tight kyoko arakiryu where i come into a select group and i teach certain techniques and principles of the archaic stuff as it applies to the modern groups that i'm with they're mostly grapplers and then i also do a wrestling and a wrestling is a modern uh a mixed martial art for police hmm. and so actually if if i may let me just put a little context there uh hmm starting with a wrestling as opposed to the traditional stuff. So I co-teach uh, on tactical communication and physical uh, interventions with the founder, Don Gula of wrestling, who's an incredible guy. If anybody is curious, look up Don G-U-L-L-A on YouTube. You'll see some very fine videos of applications of close combat in, uh, uh, with, with weaponry. And every time we take a break, we come back. And the very first thing, even though we've been out for 15 minutes, nobody has left the building. Nobody, maybe one people gone to the bathroom and come back. The very first thing everybody does is self-check. You run through your entire body. You check if you have any weapons, any firearm, any blades on your body. Then when you finish that, you do a buddy check and you turn to the next person, and people do a pat down. Then you line up and the instructors come around and pat down everybody. And then after that, somebody better remember to pat down the instructors because apparently there are more incidents where somebody gets shot by an instructor who forgot to do what he or she was supposed to do than anybody else. So in a sense, if you ritualize that to any degree, that's what some people call dojo etiquette. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I think that highlights something that if you stay with Japanese martial arts, the etiquette had a couple purposes. The one purpose is, and the core purpose is proper weapons handling in a dojo so people don't get messed up. Mm -hmm. Right. And the other is proper social handling in a dojo in the context of the culture you live in. Mm -hmm. So even back in old Japan, in a rural dojo, that it was going to be much more informal because you probably worked in the fields with whoever was responsible for teaching. Mm -hmm. In a big city dojo uh, where things got more formalized and among other things, that was going to be training on how to behave the rest of your day. By the way, it wasn't that you learned it in the dojo. It just there was a seamless connection between in the Edo period. Here's how you bow to a superior. Here's how you interact. Here's the uh, here's the language you use. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I, I had a couple times with my, one of my classical teachers and he was a pretty rough guy, but uh, it was three o'clock in the morning as it often was after practice, drinking a lot of beer, followed by sake, followed by whiskey. Uh, and he had some idea and I didn't like the idea too much. And I said, so done, huh? And I should have said, so desne. Mm-hmm. But when I said shodana, just two syllables different, it almost became a fist fight. Mm. Or it almost became a beatdown, let's put it that way. Um, because from his perspective, you only would have used that language if you intended to indicate to me that you really didn't respect me or my opinions very much. Mm. And you indicated your true thoughts by the language you used. So... Um, I'm going to stop in one second, but uh, so. Was this this a mistake uh, of your language? Like you you were just learning Japanese or was this like an intentional uh, convey the meaning? Let's put it halfway. It was um, a lot of bottles of beer. Hmm. It was three o'clock in the morning. I was tired. I was tired of him. Hmm. And I let myself get a little casual. Ah, Okay. Right which in a way is no different than Jesus Christ. This is the fourth hour of a four-hour seminar. I've been patted down. I've had people's hands in my crotch uh, uh, every hour on the hour. And like, I'm going to smuggle a weapon in. (laughs) Right. Right. And yet, by the way, in the last seminar, I patted myself down in hour three, and I realized I had a class knife in one of my inner pockets Mm -hmm. that everybody missed, by the way. So, so, you know, there's, there's this one concept of um, uh, Zanshin Mm -hmm. and, you know, usually think about Zanshin is okay. After the fight, watch your surroundings, all of that kind of stuff. Right. But in a social context, the same thing applies. You know, I can, uh, I can think of my behavior and slip ups when I've been testifying as an expert witness in court cases, which were usually associated with child abuse. And I got too comfortable on the witness stand a couple of times and said something that created difficulty for me uh, because of the way I phrased something, right? So I'm sorry, I'm just uh, sort of a little bit all over the place, but I'm just wanna set a frame that, that etiquette in its purest form is two things. It has to do with the behavior that an armed man or woman should have with other armed men or women. And if you, if everybody's behavior is predictable and proper, nobody gets hurt. But the other side of it is expand that. The same thing applies in a social setting. Hmm. So without getting any specifics about this dojo or that dojo, that's, that's sort of what I wanted to start with my introduction. That's a good framing about how it, it it has to do with general behavior and really showing due respect. Um, to me, when I boil any etiquette down, it all pretty much comes to either that or what you mentioned about, okay, these are practical protocols for safety, which is kind of one aspect of the etiquette is what, we're, what we do on the mat. Because I know some of the stuff that, that we want to talk about is going to be things that happen off the mat. Um, but but I think you hit on one, which is, okay, is there a, a practical reason why this protocol or etiquette or ritual is there? Um, 
you know, even taking it, whether you need a, a pat down search every 15 minutes, you know, in a, in a class or what have you. Um, Stephen, do you have anything you'd like to jump in with? Uh, yes, uh, basically just I, essentially I concur with everything, sorry, I concur with everything that Ellis was just saying. Um, for the most part, etiquette as we understand it is a social and cultural thing. And that will vary depending on whatever country or area that you're established in. I mean, over here, for example, uh, we, I've, I've never had to pat anyone down. It's never been part of our protocols. It's never been one of those things, certainly because of the reduction in weapons carrying and that type of thing over in the UK. Uh, it's uh, even, even when we do weapons drills and we're working with, I mean, we are not permitted live blades anywhere near a dojo over here. It's just simply not allowed. It's a chargeable offence to carry a, a blade that's over three inches long in the UK. Uh, and um, even a fold away has to be under just under three inches long. And if you're caught with it in public, you have to have a valid reason, i.e. I'm an electrician, I use it for paring back wires, or I'm a forester and I use it to free animals from traps or whatever. Uh, you can't just walk about with these weapons and being caught in possession of one's quite a serious charge. So it's you'll find that these kind of cultural variances change from place to place. Um, essentially, though, I, I, again, I agree that the, the majority of the etiquette based around weapons, particularly in the dojo, is about keeping them safe, keeping them, ensuring that everyone behaves themselves in the same manner, which is ultimately what etiquette is about. Uh, it's partly... Uh, social construct and it's partly a political construct and cultural construct whereby uh, you do not step out of the bounds as Ellis was saying if 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 you have uh anyone who who sees themselves as superior to you in a Japanese sense while in Japan and you say the wrong thing or you use a more common term they do tend to go off their nut at it um even if you get away with some leeway which I'm sure Ellis will agree with uh, particularly when sake is involved, but they only take it so far and that's down to the individuals. So for the most part, etiquette can be an absolute powder keg of problems unless you know exactly what you're walking into and you have to have it exactly on par. Uh, the, what is interesting is that mostly etiquette only becomes an issue when someone breaks it. And it tends not to be an issue before that. As long as everyone follows the etiquette, everyone else is happy. No one seems to be too bothered about it. It's still an ongoing thing. And as you said, within the Asian cultures, particularly historically, when we look back, the, the etiquette was easily, uh, the, if, if you were to look at how etiquette was conducted in the Japanese court, for example, back in the day, the royal court, that'd be very different from how it was conducted in the fields, how it was conducted within the home and all these different, social norms that we in the West have, but um, but tend to do differently. It's kind of like if your child calls you by your first name, you get that kind of, what was that? What did you, what did you call me? <laughs> Just, you call me dad. No, you know, it's like, uh, don't call me Stephen. That sounds weird. <laughs> you, you know, even, even on those very simple levels, we still have them over here. Um, it's just odd. Now, I know people whose children who allow their children to call them by their first name. But for me, that kind of destabilizes the parental relationship because you're now 
a person, you're no longer the father. So you've kind of pulled yourself down a bit. So, you know, even in the West, we have these social constructs, even though they're not as developed. And per perhaps that's not the word I'm looking for. They're not as regimented, restricted and layered as they are traditionally in the Far East and other cultures. But these social constructs appear everywhere. Uh, when If you look at every culture, every culture has an etiquette, mm -hmm. you know, uh, particularly uh, coming from Britain and the UK, you know, we've got a royal family there that we're all, I'm, I'm going to get in trouble here, that we're all supposed to revere and bow down to for all the great work they do. Um, but there are others within the country who don't believe in that. And if you don't follow that, you're breaking the herd. So you're kind of wandering off on your own and you're, you're not following that social norm. And I know people who've been hammered for being anti-monarchy, you know. Mm -hmm. That's another part of social etiquette. It's just expressed differently. Um, so yeah, it's, I, I mean, that's my initial take on it is that it's a social, political and cultural construct that we create to keep certain people in one place and keep other people in another place and never the twain shall meet, do you know what I mean? Sure. I, I think it was, who, who was it? Oh, I can't remember. Was it Marie Antoinette that came out with the phrase, uh, let them eat cake, let them eat brioche, when mm -hmm. all the French peasants were starving? She couldn't understand that they didn't have access to that. Right. Because her social circles, that was normal. And for her to say something like that seemed perfectly normal. But for everyone else, it's like, you know, cake, we've barely got flour. <laughs> you know, that, you know, so that's, this is, that's another ex example of where that social and political cultural etiquette creates barriers and invariably that's where I tend to look at etiquette um, I like to have etiquette as a manner of respect in the dojo and within my personal life but I, I don't enforce it with that iron rod that if someone calls me by my first name in the dojo I'm not too irked about it because it's my name and um, <laughs> I might be the instructor, but I'm just a person like everyone else. So you, you tend to find that I'm going to add an extra layer, social, political, cultural, and then personal etiquette. What doors you're willing to have opened, what doors you want to keep closed. And it is just a way of keeping people at certain arm's length and barriers, which ultimately is what etiquette's about, whether that's enforcing weapons control or behavioral control within the dojo. Sure. You know, one of the things that that I've always noticed about etiquette is I, I try to break down, okay, what's what is practical etiquette versus what is just ritual? And one of the things, for example, on the mat, uh, and this is the the dojo kind of method that, that I was brought up in is when after the instructor shows a technique that you're going to do, you pick a partner, you both bow, usually the senior will be the nage first, the junior will be uke first, and you do, you know, two repetitions on the left, two repetitions on the right, you bow and then you switch roles back and forth. What I noticed when you when that's not done or some other sort of just a method is not picked, the students will stand there like, well, who should go first? Maybe you should, no, I don't know if I wanna go first. Maybe, well, okay, well, I guess I'll go first if you don't wanna go first. They just waste a lot of time. So really the process is about saving time on the mat, trying to figure out who's gonna go first or how many reps are they gonna do before they switch it just gives them a, a kind of an automatic way to get more reps in a certain amount of time. So there's obviously room for practical etiquette like that. I definitely feel that there is a place for respect. Uh, some of the things that I've seen taken too far, um, 
And I've always wondered about, like, for example, I was always told, although my dojo did not do this, that it was always bad etiquette to ever walk between the, where the instructor was standing and the and the kamiza. Um, now, I had an instructor that would wander around and work with people like uh, you see Shihans do at seminars. So sometimes you can't help but be in between where the instructor is and where the 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 uh, kamiza is. Uh, so it's not really a big deal, but I've primarily studied in American dojos. And as I look and understand it, the way Morahai would teach would be, he would be kind of up by the kamiza. He would demonstrate. He'd have his students do his thing. He'd kind of stay up there and, you know, he'd let them do their reps for a while and then he'd do another demonstration. So yeah, going and walking behind him between him and the kamiza would seem like a very awkward thing to do. Maybe that was, you know, fit his environment and, and what that dojo was doing but doesn't necessarily fit or, or make sense um, for an average dojo that has instructors that walk around and assist people and things like that. Um, I don't think that that's an objectionable etiquette practice where some seem to be. I've, I have witnessed students getting yelled at for using the first name of their instructor instead of calling them sensei or shihan. Um, berated for uh kind of any number of things um you know i had one student share with me that that she this was after a class mind you was on the mat <clears throat> as people were leaving and she was sitting on the mat but leaning up against the wall and she had an instructor go go over and say you know you should never you should never sit and lean against the wall that shows disrespect um to me stuff like that is kind of opens the door for because really what that is to me is the an authority exerting their power over, mm -hmm. over an inferior and getting them in the practice to say, what I say you do, you do. And even if there is not a practical purpose underneath it, it commands obedience and kind of it, it's a manipulation tool. And what I want to talk about it, as this episode goes along is this manipulation taken to an absurd degree where people are manipulated and intimidated feeling like they they are never good enough and they always have to always have to jump through more and more hoops and smaller and smaller hoops that they start to get uncomfortable with to the point where they are questioning whether they should be there or that they want to subject themselves to uh intimidation abuse or you know other types of behavior like that um well let me take that on a bit sure. um uh so so first of all, because I wear so many hats, let me take this on in this, the context of uh, a classical Japanese martial art. Mm -hmm. um, at core, the old martial arts were a means of training a class of people how to rule the other classes um, as part of their expected social role through means of martial training. Okay. Uh, I made a recent comment that uh, in a sense, it was like the Boy Scouts. Uh, and the reason I say that is I, I read somewhere that uh, in America, at least 50 plus percent of spec ops people, Delta Force, SEALs, et cetera, had childhood experience in the Boy Scouts. Hmm. Now, Boy Scouts did not teach them how to go to war, but it taught a bunch of things. It taught unit cohesiveness. It taught a lot of survival skills. It taught how to function in an organization. And so those people, 
And it also teaches autonomy, if you've ever been in the Scouts, because there's a lot of things you've got to go off and do, you know, perfect for small, small unit training, so to speak. Similarly, the Kodyu taught Bushi how to be Bushi mm -hmm. in a way that was more than just intellectual knowledge. So you start with that done classically. Now, one of the issues I have when I'm teaching this stuff, I don't have a very rigid etiquette, um, but I have expectations of things that should be done. And I believe that if I teach something once, and I'm not talking about a technique, which can be hard to learn, but if I teach something in terms of behavior, that should be all it takes. Because to me, the question is, and the way I held myself up to a standard, was I actually paying attention or was I tripping? The teacher was saying, sit this way or do this way. And I was somewhere else thinking about something else. And for me, if it is a martial art, then how do I know as a student what is important? So I train my mind to pay attention to everything and everything the teacher is, is uh, uh, teaching. And then what I expect is the seniors teach the juniors. So I don't have to waste my time, quite frankly, teaching don't lean up against the wall. Mm -hmm. And so for me, um, not leaning up against the wall in a classical sense, aside from you know it being unseemly in appearance, is if I'm leaning up against the wall and suddenly flying object comes at me, I'm not prepared to handle that. Mm. So in one sense, if the rules aren't irrational, they're teaching a way of behavior that it's not just you drop in the dojo and do warrior cosplay, mm -hmm. but there's certain things that I should see you, one of you guys um, in a pub somewhere. And I say, yeah, I've never seen that guy, but he's got something. I, I, I should be aware of it. Not that he's unnaturally stiff or something like that, but he's aware of his surroundings. Mm -hmm. And I find some of these things like uh, don't walk behind the teacher and you know all those kind of rules is a way of training the mind to pay attention to more than the one thing, which is you and I are practicing trying to put a wrist lock on each other. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I should be aware of anything anomalous in the environment. So the, the paying attention to etiquette that way is just a mental training. Uh, I've done I some training. The practical side of that, that, that that's a practical matter to a yeah. certain degree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've been doing some training recently with some churches and they have concerns of and have had incidents of armed people coming in. Uh, the ushers are trained to recognize certain behavioral cues. This person doesn't belong here. Mm. Um, they're also trained in how to take immediate leadership because like one of the churches I'm at, they'll have 150 people at least 50 of them are carrying weapons in the church. Now imagine somebody does something and 50 people immediately pull out their firearm. <laughs> that you, so, you know, and I, I, in other countries, perhaps this would be like, this, what, this is insane. But so there's a one aspect of etiquette, which is training the mind, you know, so, so I would probably say to somebody, don't lean up against the wall. 
uh, in that one. Now, one thing I wouldn't do is start springing new behaviors on somebody that nobody's ever heard before. And I don't even say from this day forward, don't pick your teeth on the mat, so to speak, you know, whatever. And I caught you doing it, right? Because that's a setup. So, you know- a A key method of manipulation. Yeah, yeah. That just when you think you can settle, you can't settle because something new is sprung on you. And so that dynamic is using etiquette to make a person always feel wrong in their own skin. And that would definitely enhance authoritarianism. Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. As opposed to having whatever the dojo rules are, and it should be coherent why we have those rules. Mm-hmm. Right. If, if, if I'm doing a classical martial art, I want to know the cultural context in which these weapons were used, sure. right? But I don't go overboard with it either. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, I can see that, that that student who, after class, is leaning against the wall, rather than say, well, leaning against the wall is disrespectful, to say, well, old school, leaning against the wall puts you in a vulnerable position that you can't move out of if you're attacked. So that's why we don't lean against the wall, not because it shows me or the dojo as the instructor, me as the instructor or the dojo disrespect. Like and the explanation, it's not so much what you do as how you do it. The explanation makes a world of difference. Yeah. Can I tell one funny story before? Yeah, sure. I've got a number. Uh, of it, so, so break the seal and, and let her rip. Okay. So uh, I mentioned my one code you teacher who I've written a bit about him, uh, but led a very interesting life and sort of brought me into some interesting entanglements. And uh, one day uh, I was brought to a place and I met an old gentleman who was surrounded by an entourage. And he was introduced to me as he was the consigliere of uh, the uh, Sumiyoshi Lengo, which was the second biggest Yakuza gang in Japan. He was the power behind the throne. He was a very dignified patrician guy, not like you think of, well, not like some people would think of a gangster. Mm. Um, He was a mathematical genius. He was an organizational genius. And so my instructor introduced him to me and called him sensei. And so I'm like, okay, I got to be on my best behavior. I'm paying attention to my teacher's cues. And so I said, Ajimete omeni kakarimasu which is literally means something to the effect of, this is the first time I've ever hung in front of your eyes. Mm-hmm. It's a very formal way of saying, you know, hello. So he sort of gave me a sort of grunt as a bow. And uh, I was part of this social group, if you will, for about an hour and a half. So me and my teacher, go, go get a taxi. We're going back to where we're going. And he turns to me and he says, what the fuck is wrong with you? And this was not infrequent, but, you know, so I was like, uh, what, what, what? And he says, why did you introduce yourself to him that way? He said, Bushi don't bow to Yakuza. Now, the first thing I took away from that is, my teacher just called a Jewish guy from Pittsburgh a Bushi. I made it. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking inside. Sure. This this right wing America hating guy whose last student that he stuck with is this American guy 
He's just called a bushy. I don't care what happens next. <laughs> so that's the first thing. And but I'm trying to defend myself. And he go, I, I said, but you called him sensei. I was just following your lead. And he says, you are such an idiot. You know nothing. He knew and I knew I was giving him false respect out of contempt. And what your job was, was to speak rudely to him. So then I would have the opportunity to apologize for my uncultured, uneducated foreign dog that follows behind me. And that would increase my status. Why don't you know things like this? So. Wow. that You talk about an intricate. A yeah, minefield for you to tap dance through. <laughs> right. But you know what? That has been truly a godsend to me in, you know, my current, my, my, my career, which is crisis intervention, uh, which is sometimes crisis intervention with people of different social standing, very complex thing with a lot of players. And what he taught me was how to read the room, mm. even though the room I'm in is very different than where I was then. I was able to generalize and it didn't become rigid in that way that, oh, you're supposed to function like robots and I just didn't say, you know, it didn't work that way for me. So. Well, it's interesting. It, 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 I, I'm not fluent in Japanese, but it sounds like you did a very respectful introduction, which under normal circumstances for somebody of authority would have been totally appropriate. but you were put in kind of a position which you weren't really notified of ahead of time of what he wanted you to do, which was you, you, you had no way of picking up on his intention of the intricate relationship between your instructor and this, this Yakuza man, right? Well, and, and that's the point. Yakuza are garbage. Right. right? Mm -hmm. from, from the social perspective, they may be billionaire or whatever, they may actually follow etiquette far more rigidly than anybody else in Japan does today, right? Okay. But in social standing, they're garbage in regard to somebody who um, is of a certain social standing. And one of, one of the things that um, he said to me at another occasion is before the war, Yakuza did our bidding and the shame of the success of the Bushi, which is the right wing in Japan, is now we do gangster bidding. Mm. The world is mm. turned upside down. <laughs> anyway, sorry. So, well, but no, that's that that's a very fascinating story, and it it makes me wonder if if such levels of, I guess, what would you say, intricate social interaction based on I'm better than you, you're garbage, and I'm Mr. Hotshot if that is actually draws a certain personality type, because obviously in Japan, they have hundreds of years of history with this intricate culture that the Western culture doesn't really, it doesn't have something that's that um, distinct. I mean, we have classes that go back, but it doesn't have the, the uh, I guess, uh, intricate and very powerful uh, uh, structures that, that the Japanese or the Eastern Asian cultures do. Well, I, th I think that's the point you hit on, and then I'll, I'll uh, stop this, my part of the thread. But um, from the Asian and particularly the Japanese context, it's not about me, the individual. I think you're garbage. I think I'm better. Mm -hmm. It's my social standing mm -hmm. entitles, requires me to view the world this way vis a vis mm -hmm. you. 
Okay. It's not about me, the individual. Whereas, you know, you can look at me and say, you know, I don't like you pretty much. I don't respect the way you behave. I'm a better man than you. Mm. And that would be a very Western response. Mm -hmm. As opposed to the Eastern responses, I may think I'm a better man, but you have this social capital based on your birth, based on your social position, and that has to be respected regardless. Mm. Yeah, I can see that translate to, you know, the basically the pursuit of rank. If you look at that, even in, even in Western culture, you know, people pr pursue, they want to uh, have their showdown. They want to get their black belt. And then it's like, well, I, I need to be Nidon or Sandan and Yandan. And I need to, I need to keep getting, you know, climbing that ladder because the higher you get, the better, you know, the more authority you get, the more respect you command, all these other things is almost draws Westerners into that sort of hierarchical template. Um, and then, of course, with that is you get the, and and this is another thing that I that I that kind of bothers me about the whole approach. And I know it's natural because, you know, any student is going to open their mind to their teacher and say, "I will accept." You know, I, I know I'm here to learn. I know I'm going to change. I know I'm going to have you fill my mind, but I'm trusting that you're going to fill my mind with what I need. I don't even know what I need as a student. So there you go. Let 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 me have it. That puts the student in a very vulnerable position to a teacher or a coach or an instructor who can maybe realize that they can manipulate this, this student. They're, they are in a vulnerable position. And whether that could be, I want you to wash my car. I want you to, you know, go take my, my dog to the vet. I want you to clean my house. Uh, maybe I want you to give me your body. Um, I know within the martial arts community, another element of the room is how many, how many, instructors and authority figures use their students for for sex and have go, crossed the line into um, sexual manipulation uh, among other things um, and so uh, to me I guess that's always that trust that, that there needs to be an, an integrity by the teacher not to indulge or not to take advantage of the of their student who's opened up their mind and their heart to say all right teach me I'll, I will follow your instruction because I want skill or I want, you know, advance. I don't say advancement because that kind of conveys I'm looking for accolades, but I want to, I want to increase my skills. I want to better myself and they open themselves to it. And I, to me, that's a, just a delicate thing. And, and, and I see a lot of examples of abuse of that trust. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Stephen? Yeah, it's, yeah, there's a, there's a certain level of, there has to be a lot of self-control and self-discipline applied for any instructor, a coach, doesn't matter, whatever they're doing. Uh, and they have to have their own level of personal integrity, which again is part of your own personal etiquette and how you choose to conduct yourself. Uh, I'm, as an example, I, I ask my students not to do what I do sometimes, but do what I ask of them in terms that if I swear on the mat, please don't do it back because I have to pull you up for that, but I can get away with it because I'm a cantankerous old fool. Um, and at the same time, it's never appropriate, but there's times when to get a point across, we do that. So it's, I, I find as I get older, that type of enforced etiquette relaxes. Um, if we can go back to the leaning against the wall thing just briefly, uh, I have three rules in my club, really, for how people conduct themselves. Well, four, technically. Um, 
and it's don't lean against the wall, don't cross your arms and don't put your hands in your pockets if you have pockets. Something because each one of those will, if that becomes a habit, puts you into a compromising position. That's all it's for. And I tell people that. So uh, if, if they catch me doing it, they're well within their rights to point that out. Number four, by the way, is if you scratch your ass, go and wash your hands. Um, which is my fourth one. <laughs> uh, I tend to keep that one specifically for that purpose. Go to the toilet, uh, yeah. which is right up there with the picking your teeth, Ellis. I hate to say, I was like, you pick your teeth, go and go to the toilet, wash your hands. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's there has to be a great deal of self control when it comes to this, and this is something that anyone coming to the martial arts has to be aware of. Invariably, unless you're of a personality archetype where you are vulnerable to potential abuse or you come into a martial art looking for someone who is going to overbear or overpower you in some sort of emotional or physical sense. And it does happen. We do recognize sometimes people come in who are looking to have someone solve all their problems and take control of their life for them. And as an instructor, that's a huge red flag warning to you that you may be having a student come in who is of a particular archetype that. Uh, they want you to be over-controlling with them. I'm not saying it's a fetish or anything like that. I don't quite mean it that way, but it, it could be that they have a, a certain type of, as I said, personality archetype or a, a mental health condition that doesn't permit them to be um, fully cognizant of what they need as an individual and therefore they look for it externally for someone to exert that influence on them. And uh, do you guys use the term safeguarding in the U.S.? Safeguarding? I know the word, but safeguarding. I've heard it used very yeah. Safeguarding is, is massive over here in the UK. And basically, essentially, safeguarding is training that we as instructors go through to ensure that we recognize where anyone's physical, mental, or social or emotional health could be compromised. And then we are well within our rights as instructors to approach external safeguarding authorities within the local authority, within the police, and to highlight where we think someone may be at risk uh, as a result of their activities. Yeah, and there's, there's certain sorry, Hell, I'm sorry. Uh, what you're talking about in the U.S. is a mandated reporter, that certain people right. in certain profession, professions, if one sees abuse or something like that, you are required mm -hmm by you know, statutory authority, you have to report that. You can't talk yourself mm -hmm. out of it. You know, Even if you're wrong, you have to report it. And the investigation yeah, absolutely. should not be done by you. It's done by the people who are professionally Correct, able. yeah. And it, it's not our job to investigate it or to inquire about it or to you know interrogate them about the circumstances. If we see something, for example, we have an individual coming in. It could be a, a young lady. Uh, you see a partner drop her off, there's an argument, she comes in, she's upset, she's not 100%, and that goes on for a couple of weeks or months. We would be required to take her health into consideration. If she's coming into your dojo in a, a, a state of distress and is using her training as a vehicle for that, then as a competent instructor, it's up. I am well within my rights to approach the local authority and say, look, there's a young lady, I'm concerned for her safety. She comes to my club, she's dropped off. She always seems to be in a state of distress. I'm making you aware of this. And then step back and just try and keep the training as consistent and give them a stable platform to train in. That's all we can do and leave it in the hands of the competent authorities. Um, but there are people out there who will exploit individuals who come in within that state. 
And um, it's one of the biggest blights on some martial arts is that some people get into positions of power and they like to ex exert that authority because they them and for me personally, it's because they're, they're lacking something inside themselves. They themselves are inadequate or they lack confidence in themselves or they were whatever. They just want to exert influence over others. And it's entirely inappropriate. I've seen it in other clubs. Uh, I've been visiting some clubs, not Aikido. I was visiting some clubs and I saw the behavior of the instructor towards the students. And it was abusive, verbally abusive, mentally abusive, uh, you know, accusing people of being, you know, the worst of the worst, not in a joking way, but genuinely kind of really denigrating them as human beings. And uh, I sat through it and then approached him at the end and basically said that I'm going to report this to the local authority. I'm going to report it to the police. And if they don't get their act in order, I'll be taking it even further because that's unprofessional. And apparently the club closed down two weeks later, which didn't make me popular with the students. But at the end of the day, I don't care because that was potentially a vehicle whereby someone was going to, someone was either going to become physically, mentally, emotionally damaged or worse, they were going to be pushed to the point where as we don't pat down in the UK, someone was going to come in with a knife and start setting about people in the dojo. They were going to have a Michael Douglas falling down moment and some, and the wrong person was going to be hurt. So it's, you know, and did I cross a line that day? I don't think I did because... Um, I think I managed to avoid a further escalation of potential violence, not at the target, but at a secondary target that may have had nothing to do with the initial problem. And this all comes back to this handling of etiquette and personal behaviour. I, I try to avoid the term etiquette nowadays. I, I, I prefer the term personal behaviour. Um, and essentially within the dojo, treat everyone the way you want to be treated. Because in a Western sense, as, as Ellis pointed out, if if we go and play samurai cosplay twice a week, as a Westerner, I've read a lot of Japanese philosophy. I've studied a bit of Japan. I've spoken to people from Japan. I don't understand Japan. It's a completely alien concept to me. I've never lived there. I've never had to live there. Uh, you know, I would love to visit, but if I go there, I'll not have a bloody clue what I'm doing and make a fool of myself more often than not. But at the end of the day, uh, I will never understand that culture, no matter how much I, I think I would like to understand that culture. So for me to imply, to bring people into the dojo and then say, right, this is what they do in Japan. I'm talking bollocks. I, I've not got a clue what they do in Japan. So I don't do it. I just say, right, this is the rules. Don't stand your arms folded. Don't pick your nose. Or if you do, go and wash your hands. If you scratch your ass, wash your hands. Uh, you know, <laughs> don't please don't lean against the wall because it's probably going to fall down because it's an old dojo. Uh, you, you know, little things like that. Uh, you know, just don't compromise your position and I'll give them the reasons for that. If you see something that you think, and what I tell every student is, if you see or I say something that you find offensive, tell me, because I might not know. Because I'm... I'm an older guy now. I'm, I, I come from a 70s background. You know, things were said and done back then that are different. If you take offence to anything I say, you need to let me know so I can enact corrective behaviour in myself. Otherwise, I'll never learn. And we keep that open environment. You know, and don't get me wrong, there's also times when I'll say, <laughs> I will tell folk, if, if I say something and you don't like it and it's not actually anything bad, I'll probably call you a snowflake and we'll have a laugh about it. 
and then you'll accuse me of using incorrect terminology of which you'll be correct. Um, so we, we kind of look at it that way. But um, yeah, I try to steer people towards a personal behavior thing. The only real etiquette we do now in my classes is we bow before and after each set of techniques simply to justify to ourselves and everyone around us, here's the start of the technique and now we've finished the technique and we can step back. And that final bow is so that we both bow, we close off the technique, then that way I don't hear yame and I turn around and I think, oh, we've stopped and then get hit in the side of the head with a balkan. That's basically it. That's as far as we take it nowadays because from a personal perspective, I've not got a clue about how Japanese culture would react to etiquette. They would probably come over here and look at us and go, you know, it's like a pajama party. You know, the, basically. and I'm glad you brought that up because I've felt that way for a long time. Like I'm not a native Japanese speaker. I've not lived in Japan. How in the world am I supposed to convey some sort of Japanese culture without screwing it up? Like, And I, I don't want to do that. But I think uh, on that last sentence, one of the things that really makes me laugh is the whole uh, os thing that some dojos and organizations have just r run away with. And then you hear native Japanese that will just say, we don't do that's not no, how that. the word os like it's for hello it's for thank you it's for oh that's cool or sensei that, that's fantastic or they, they just use os for everything and it, it, <laughs> yeah, it, let me jump well, in it's on that like one. a cheer where the whole class goes os all yeah. together uh, yeah well, oh, oh, the original term was ohio gozaimasu oh. which mm -hmm. is good morning and it literally mm -hmm. means it's i see you early mm -hmm. right and then in, uh, um, like when I used to do Muay Thai, we'd go to the kickboxing gym and it'd be nighttime and we'd go, Ohayas, which is, you know, yo, right? <laughs> and Os, which is from Ohio Gozaimas, but it basically was a military term, you know, not official military, but it became a way of saluting. And yeah, it becomes a, 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 a I remember one time at uh, the Aikikai Hombu, um, there was a it was a day for a bunch of university kids, mm -hmm. and so the, all the university clubs, which are pseudo militaristic, where the senpai pick on the kohai, mm -hmm. uh, you know, fourth year student by dint of being there four years gets to beat up the first year student, and literally, I would see uh, um, the four year students. Mm -hmm. They'd finish a technique and they go, mm -hmm. "I'm moving back." and go like. And what was supposed to happen was the first year student was supposed to <laughs> hand him a handkerchief that he would use to mop his sweat. Okay. Right. <laughs> so I, I couldn't help it. I started beating these guys up because uh, I just had to, but it sounded like a gaggle of geese hmm. because uh, they weren't only saying us in, um, uh, 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 in response to a statement, it was like an exhale. And so you had 60 young men all us, us, us in the middle of the technique, at the end of the technique, and the, the, the cacophony. Ellis, <laughs> uh, yes, sorry, what's, what's your take on that? Uh, I was told way back, way, way early back, and I, I saw it again recently that the us command was the contraction of Oshi Shinobu, which was to push and endure. Uh, and I think that comes from the. Uh, I'm I'm just wondering because obviously you've you've lived there, you know how things get said over there. But there's that Western has has this become a Western myth 
Oshishinobu to actually to push and to endure through adversity, that kind of thing. Because uh, I think that comes, so it was a colleague of mine in, oh no, uh, Kyokushin, I think, told me that mm. many years ago. Uh, and I do, I've, I've always kind of wondered about the validity of that. You know, I have never heard that before. It, it could be true. I don't know. I never, be, yeah. I never heard it before. Um, but, you know, and it makes sense, you know, I, I'm an endure, blah, blah, blah. But, yeah, maybe, maybe. The, I mean, I I'll, was... I'll... Go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say, I'll, I'll be honest, I sparred with my, co- with my Kyokushin mate, and Osh is about all I could say after about five minutes because he beat the shit out of me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, that's, that's the only noise I could make. Are you all right? Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> You know, when I've trained with groups that that oh, all over the place, the, the 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 only practical thing that I really saw with it, one is it did it did give an acknowledgement of thank you, uh, you you showed me this or or something of that nature, but it also gave a well, how much enthusiasm are you putting behind your oaths? Is it an oaths or is it an oaths or oaths? You know, you get people that are just they, they're out, out competing each other to put more exuberance and energy behind their oaths. And so it's almost tell like you something proud energy dynamic. Yeah. Yes, there is. And I can tell you something funny. See if you're Scottish, uh, us is lint from your pocket. <laughs> well, us is literally lint or that horrible fluff that you find in your belly button in the morning. That's us. Okay. <laughs> so that's a Scottish there's, term there's for you. There's culture translation so, for you right there. There's, a, the, the, yeah. there's an etiquette issue right there where everyone's walking about looking for us. <laughs> and uh, and we're finding lint in our pocket, you know. So your hands shouldn't have been in your bloody pockets. Get it out your pocket. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, so look, yeah, one I'll... of the things that actually sparked this this topic, I had somebody write me a week or so ago about. Uh, he was really bothered by this thing. He was he cross trained in some other arts uh, within his Aikido dojo. He was asked to do a demonstration of a technique from from one of these arts that actually, ironically, he was originally taught from an Aikido guy. Um, at any rate, so he said, oh, please do this, this demonstration. And he was a Udansha. I'm not sure of what rank. And he he asked a senior instructor to be his uke. And you know, the instructor said, okay, that yeah, sounds good. So they did they did the demo and it went off, you know, nice. And then he got an, a rather stern email from a, a junior instructor saying, never invite the senior instructor to be an uke for any demonstration. That crossed the line. And, you know, um, and there was a few other things he mentioned in there. I guess he accidentally slipped and used this instructor's first name instead of sensei. And this was a, basically he was called the heel uh, regarding this. And and I guess the method it was done, you know, he, he said, this really bothers me um, to the point of, I don't know if I want to participate in this group or not. And to me, that's what struck. It wasn't so much the, what was said, but how it was done was in such a way that it it urged this guy to question whether he wanted to participate in that group anymore, especially so given look, the senior instructor didn't he didn't he seemed to be fine with with being okay like it wasn't a, a thing of his. So look, um, is this not a mirror of uh, Western society right now? When I do uh, worksite safety training, mm-hmm. um, one of the things I talk about is you will not be safe unless you have group solidarity. Mm-hmm. And if people are divisive in the group, you are not going to be aware of the things you have to be aware of because you're preoccupied with other stuff. Yeah. 
And I say, you know, there is a uh, uh, changing social mores. Uh, what word is acceptable? What word is forbidden? And I say, it is your responsibility to always give your coworker or your dojo mate or your guest the benefit of the doubt. Assume, unless proven otherwise, that it was done without malice. And if something bothers you, have a quiet talk with them in which you talk about why it bothers you, et cetera, et cetera. If the person says, well, screw you, I'm going to do it anyway, now you have an issue. Mm -hmm. But you know what happens now is um, a person says the wrong thing, and it gives other people an opportunity to have power over them. Right. Uh, and, and, and Western culture has become the first culture in human history in which you accumulate social capital by claiming victimhood. Never in the history of the world has been a culture that people crave to be a victim because then you have power over other people. Okay? Mm -hmm. So now when I go to a dojo and I'm, you know, with the exception of my few small places, I'm always a guest. I don't call out the senior instructor when I'm demonstrating a technique mm. um, because number one, I don't know the politics in the dojo. I don't know how they've got this thing set up in their own mind. I don't know how this instructor has it set up. And maybe the instructor believes that she or he is going to lose power or capital if they're seen thrown by another person, for example, or, or mm. whatever. Now, because I've been asked to teach, I will go circulate around. And when I get to the senior instructor, one-on-one, -on -one, I will show what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there should be the benefit of the doubt. Um, you know, does this junior instructor even have the, what, I, I, I don't know what the right term is. Is it their place to be correcting a guest? like that in well, a letter. I'm not sure that the, he was necessarily a guest. I think he was, he started to train there and what, and was a part of that group. Um, and to and me, should, as I understand be. was explained that, that when he asked the senior instructor, it wasn't on the mat and he said, how would you like to do this? This was privately set up in advance. Mm -hmm. um, and so to me, when I read, when I read that, I thought, well, if the senior instructor was approached to be okay in this demo, he could certainly have the freedom to say, how about I suggest this this other person to be okay? Like to me, that's the easiest, simplest, most direct fix that. Yeah. So either say, no thanks. Here, how about how about him? Even if he was on the mat. Right. So either the junior's being a jerk because that's what he or she wants to do, or sure. the senior is passive aggressive and delegated the junior to do that. Sure. Sure. You know, and yeah, mm -hmm. it, it's you know back to a couple points that were raised. Um, so I've got students, I know they're never going to go to Japan. Mm -hmm. And so what I have done in terms of daigi, the, the formal etiquette, is I've really pared it down to the things that if they weren't done in any dojo, particularly in Japanese cultural context, would be an egregious, it just would look bad. It would, it just would be wrong. Mm -hmm. I also teach okay, here's a more formal way, a more elaborate way of doing things. If you ever do take it on yourself to go to Japan, this is how you would behave. So you know that I don't require that. Mm -hmm. Right. Sure. Um, I'm also really, and this is something Stephen was talking about 
I believe, I believe there's a natural etiquette. And so for example, even with my own students, I, I don't want to be called sensei even on the map. Mm -hmm. And this is me. Uh, the reason is, is I've always felt if I can't engender respect without the use of a title, mm -hmm. there's something wrong with me. I shouldn't be teaching. I like and that so, focus on substance over style because so many yeah. people love the titles, but they don't have yeah. the substance underneath. So with my own people, I'm Ellis. And if if I ever noticed that I wasn't being treated with respect, it's either, okay, either I've got a problem with the student or there's a problem with me. If I go teaching in a seminar, it makes everybody more comfortable if I use the term sensei. Mm -hmm. Now, some, earlier, one of you guys said something that made me laugh. Uh, people expecting to be called shihan. Mm -hmm. Shihan is a written term. You do not ever, you should never call somebody shihan uh, Jeremac, shihan Scott. That is, it is embarrassing. It's, it's ultimately common here in the U.S. Everybody does it. It's wild that way. I know it's 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 it's, and that's a funny thing that you know somebody demands a, a sort of etiquette or a form that's wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's the distortion that bothers me in terms of Americans or or non-Japanese taking on these what they feel is this Japanese culture and structure when they don't understand it and what they're repeating is just flat out incorrect and by the way you will see that in japan now too in <laughs> allegedly traditional schools oh, where boy. the instructors themselves do not know uh the facts uh, i remember i upset at a, some people where uh, uh isoyama sensei who's a very famous aikido teacher and very very powerful was asked why uh they mm -hmm. wear long hakama Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, it's because the summer I used to conceal their footwork so that they're there. Mm -hmm. And that's one. It's total nonsense. Mm -hmm. um, it's properly speaking, Hakama is riding collats. Mm -hmm. They were riding breeches. That yeah, chops, basically. Yeah. If you didn't have a Hakama, all you had is a kimono and you ride a horse. And that which makes a man most mister is going to be waving in the sunlight. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah. the hakama was to cover up basically your genitals because mm -hmm. the kimono is going to be open. Right. And it became a kind of a mark of, uh, uh, um, you know, aristocratic class. You wore the hakama and all of that. It should, properly speaking, you should see the person's ankle bones when they're standing, because until modern times, Japanese streets were mud. Mm -hmm. There were horses. There were cows whatever walking on the street you wore geta you know which is mm -hmm. going to flip up mud and if your hem is too low you're going to be dragging horse shit into people's houses mm -hmm. right so it was supposed to be high and there became this affectation now in the royal court you wore this really long hakama which was the equivalent in the middle ages of those really long toe shoes that people wore mm -hmm. you know <laughs> right, which was a kind of fetishized behavior. Who can wear one longer? You know, right. I'm old enough that in the 60s, who had bell bottoms with a wider, right, you know, thing. <laughs> it, it was an affectation, 
And it also uh, impeded movement in the court. So, you know, you couldn't assassinate somebody. Mm -hmm. But this thing of Hakama over the toes, that is just a, a, an affectation. If you look at films of, uh, take Aikido, for example, if you look at photographs from the 30s, mm -hmm. Weishiba, all his students, you can actually see part of their calf when they're standing. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a lot of times people will claim etiquette who should know better or claim ritual or claim things, and they're ignorant of it themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's where the point that you've been raising that it can become a means of social control and power to be able to require people to do a bunch of behaviors. And then the question comes up, is this going to actually make somebody a better practitioner in a martial art, if that is in fact even a concern. Right. Well, and it, it's also based in the, I'm gonna present you this fascinating mystery of all of these things that you don't know, that you want to know, and I'm gonna reveal them to you kind of one at a time. And all of this is is so wondrous that you're never, you would never figure it out on your own. And that's why you need me, the instructor to convey this to you, which attracts students like, you know, a moth to a light bulb. Um, mm -hmm. uh, there's that mysticism aspect of it as well Tristan is that most right. people that come into the martial arts they're expecting you know <laughs> you're expecting Kwai Chang Kane and Grasshopper and all this kind of stuff I hate to be terribly racist with that kind of thing nowadays because mm -hmm. that's very inappropriate nowadays but uh, you know if anybody's got offence to that well I'm offended by your offence because it happened it was a TV show but um, yeah it's everyone comes into this expecting some sort of mystical change you, you know uh or even one of my, human ability and that must, yeah one of my favorites must be based in some kind of strange mystery that they just have no comprehension of yes and uh one of my highest instructors that i've trained keeps saying to me i keep waiting on my spider powers kicking in and it's not happening <laughs> you know <laughs> it's just not happening and it's you know it's uh but a lot of people come in and they're expecting really they're expecting to be changed by their experience to be turned into something that they've already got in their preconceived notion, you know? So I suppose one of the etiquette practices in my club is to bring everyone down with a thump and say, look, it's, this is just movement of the body and mm -hmm. it's, simplest form you're moving your body and you're learning to do it in a different way doesn't matter if you're doing karate kung fu aikido taekwondo muay thai i'm sorry if i missed any out <laughs> i'm sure there's thousands but it doesn't matter what you're doing all you're doing is moving your body there's nothing mystical about this at all and the first thing i want to do which demystif is demystify the process you know this is biomechanics 99 percent of aikido is good biomechanics you know the rest of it is luck and um, actually, maybe I got that the wrong way around. <laughs> maybe it's 99% luck, 1% good biomechanics. Feels that way sometimes. But um, yeah, it's, it's trying to break down this mystical perception because everyone, I, I, I don't know who it is, it's, it's like the ones that come in and want to be the ultimate fighter within three weeks. It doesn't happen. And then you get people coming from other arts that want to do, I'm coming to this because I want to learn wrist locks. So you show them wrist locks and then boom, down to earth with a thump, they realize wrist locks are sore. They don't want to learn wrist locks anymore. Um, and it's, it's, I think, I can't remember if it was yourself or Ellis mentioned at the start, it's about managing expectations as well. And what's going on uh, is that 
enabling that when people come in demystify the process right away i think that's really important is, is to just you know let's make this as normal as possible i'm a human being uh, brain i'm a human being you know i eat sleep walk shoot with the rest of them you know we're really no different the only difference is i've got a wee bit of knowledge that you don't have but that should not give me power over you well that brings up one of the things i definitely wanted to talk about in this discussion and that is if your group starts becoming more interested in the ritual and the etiquette and the study of the art sort of takes a back seat to it the difference in people that you will attract you will attract people that really dig the ritual and they don't really care so much about the art part they they like the the formality and uh you know i've i've visited dojos that remind me when, when, when my grandmother was still alive when i was very young she was Catholic. And so we went to many Catholic ceremonies and boy, you get ritual in one ear and out the other. And I found it was long-winded, very boring. Of course, I was what, six years old, seven years old, but you know, I found nothing appealing about it. And I've entered some dojos that feel exactly the same way as walking into a giant cathedral. I mean, it's gorgeous in there. It looks like the Japanese embassy. No one speaks above a whisper. Um, nobody really interacts with each other for fear of breaking the 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 delicate ambiance of the the space um, class happens nobody can speak except the instructor everybody gets done with class they bow they silently go off change and leave and it's just like you know to me that felt more like the ritual and the atmosphere was the attraction of a dojo like that versus a all right I want to learn practical skills and and the practical thing that I saw was I watched students especially, you know, young to intermediate, uh, beginner to intermediate students that were struggling with their repetitions, but their partner couldn't say, hey, maybe you should try moving your foot or, or try doing this a little differently. Maybe this will help. They couldn't do that. They had to wait for an instructor to come over and the instructor just couldn't cover everybody and really didn't. He just kind of walked around and, you know, looked and then, okay, well, now we'll do the next technique. And I get that that's very much a old school Aikido way of method of teaching, but the atmosphere just felt to me like it was built on the formality, not on, okay, we want to help these students actually learn. But yeah. but See, I got to be a devil's advocate on this in the sense that the people in that dojo, that's what they want. Mm -hmm. Because right. now the question of is that the people that they will further attract? Because right, you, you know, it's like because right down the street is Acme Muay Thai uh uh mma gym you know and they could walk into that school and they could learn purely practical stuff you know buy themselves a, a, a dayglow rash guard and they're good right but that's not what they want sure. and i'm not putting them down for that either mm -hmm. uh, uh uh it's well i guess my question is is there is there an aikido version of that movie tai gym that's focused on all right the practical art versus the i want to samurai cosplay and dress up and be in this great cathedral well look you know um I, mean? I guess that's how that, i would get it. that may be a whole other podcast but <laughs> that could be definitely yeah but 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 let me just sort of take this on uh so if you strip away the japanese context to aikido um you would have a kind of generic arm's length jujitsu uh that's generic right 
the the maintaining the ritual, maintaining the cultural context, um, I think challenges people's minds in a lot of interesting ways. Uh, it takes you out of your comfort zone to try to figure out how another culture and other cultures' values relate to you. If you know, I've been in Aikido dojos. I, one of my favorite dojos, I'll give a shout out, is uh, Aikido of Etna in Pittsburgh. And uh, half the dojo is uh, uh, 250 pounds and above. Mm. It's a place of laughter. Um, it's a place where there are people of every political stripe. And instead of tiptoeing around it, they have loud arguments at the bar about politics. They tease each other right? It's a healthy environment. They thump each other hard and they're still doing, if you will, classic Aikido with the bow, with the kamiza and all of that. Mm -hmm. And I think they've done a beautiful job of keeping um, a Japanese context yeah, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. right? So it's not overdone and it's not underdone. It's, it's got the fascination of participating to some degree in another culture, and yet within the Aikido framework of techniques, studying how to make those techniques as strong as possible. You described that, the, I think, the balance really well. And, and that's something that, you know, in bringing this topic up, I'm certainly not advocating stripping all etiquette out of martial art practice, so much as calling uh, what seems to be a, sort of a more common issue, which is etiquette and whatnot, that is taken too far. And in, mm -hmm. in doing that, I actually wanted to mention too that I, I've seen personally a number of times where I will have met a shihan who's really cool, very relaxed, you know, not high strung or or demanding at all. But it's their sub, the juniors, their number twos and threes that are the ones that are all uptight. That everything has to be right for shihan, and and you know they they kind of they're the ones that go scold people and, and demand, you know, certain things for them. And I, I wanted to bring this up because this is a, a classic story. Um, I, I call it the chicken wing story. <clears throat> and uh, I was at a seminar and there was a, a Shihan and, and his wife and they, they had their organization there and I went and visited. And uh, we all went out to dinner afterwards. And of course, there was like 40, 50 people. So the restaurant had set up these rows of tables and I let everybody kind of go sit down. I'm like, I'm the guest. So I'm, I'm going I'm, to, I'm not the guest. I'm just somebody who's attended their seminar. I'm a nobody. I know they probably have their own little networks of who wants to sit with who and who sits by Xi'an because everything was very formal. Xi'an sits first, then the, the, the seconds and thirds are seated next. And I mean, it was almost like a presidential dinner kind of thing. And uh, so I'm waiting off in the corner to just find my little seat off in the corner of the room. And I come over and I'm invited to sit at Xi'an's table. And my wife and I were. So I'm like, okay, well, oh, all right. So we go over and, or, you know, we're seated across from them and we're kind of making chit chat, very pleasant. And um, the appetizers come and, and he grabs a, a chicken wing from his plate and he holds it out to my wife, you know, and smiles. And she very politely said, oh, no, thank you. I appreciate it, but, uh, you know, no thanks. And he just freezes. He's holding this chicken wing out in front of her and staring at her with a, with a smile on his face. And now my wife, I can glance over and she's now looking kind of puzzled. Dart, her eyes are darting around like, what on earth should I do here? And his wife says, oh, you never say no to Shihan. So you have to take it. And so she, okay, I guess, and grabs the chicken wing and sets it down on her plate and you know, and that was it. And she, she afterwards like, what, what was that? 
I said, yeah, that was kind of odd, <laughs> kind of strange. But this was also somebody who, if ever he needed to go to the bathroom, and this place is like a Chili's or a, an Applebee's. They had two people go out, clear the bathroom out so that there was nobody else in there. And then so he they, would go in and they would stand guard over the bathroom. And then he would come back. And, you know, I found out about that. I was like, okay, well, I, you know, and he, not Jap, not Japanese, didn't live in Japan. <laughs> I and knew that was coming. Like there were Yakuza running around, you know, <laughs> like, is this, is this what is normal I've, high level Shihan behavior is feeling like you're a mafia boss or, or <laughs> like what? Go ahead. Yeah, there's, there was a, a gentleman who showed him in nameless in the UK Aikido circuit. I don't even know if he's still alive, who made himself up looking like O Sensei. He had big long white beard and Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Kind of, I, I I'm not gonna say this. Uh, no. I, 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 I was at a course once and I was watching and I swear to all the powers that be. His wife came on and knelt in front of him and he used her to help him get up off the mat. Hand on the top of the head, the whole deal? Yep. Woof. And I was like, what the f is that about? I thought, what? <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God. Um, and I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I just, I was, to this day, I'm still like, huh? <laughs> Why? <laughs> I mean, I th I'm not even sure the Japanese woman did that. No. But, and he was treated with such reverence and it was the same kind of thing it was like one of the times back in the day uh, I was out doing karate and I went to the pub at night I was drinking cola because I had to drive like 25 miles back home and people are coming up to the instructor in the middle of Glasgow and going sensei would you like a beer Oath! he's like Oath again and bowing to him and like he was like look can you just sit down and stop doing that, please? And it's I find as, as you were saying, it, it's this, it's not the, it's often not the top tier, it's the second and third tier yes men that follow them about, you know, <laughs> like like the atypical Japanese villain in a movie. If you ever watch the Raruni Kenshin films and you've got the bad guy and all these wee yes men sycophants walking about with their fans trying to keep themselves cool and do what he wants. It's it's all very funny. Um but yeah, it's this is where that kind of cultural appropriation, which is what I'm going to call it, is cultural appropriation to suit your own political power base. Uh, that, oh, no, that, no. You know, no. I'd have poked wonder, him in. I'd have, the times that I've seen yeah. it, okay, is is it the Shihan doesn't know that this is going on around him? I can't see how he would not notice it. Mm, and if, if he no, did, no. Wouldn't, wouldn't he ultimately be the one to say, okay, this is not the sort of behavior yeah. I would like to see. I mean, well, look, look, if he, if he or she doesn't know, to me, that's worse. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. because how, you're, you're unaware of what's going on. You know, that's sort of like the American yeah. president right now, but sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and our, you know, and our prime minister, I hate to say, it's the same thing. <laughs> you know, um, I, I'll, I'll leave the names out, but uh, uh, a friend of mine who is a very, very high-level martial artist was at a Daitodu seminar, and the Daitodu instructor, uh, and they were, uh, they had a peer relationship, mm -hmm. and the Japanese Daitodu instructor. Um, would make little twitches with his finger and people would not only flip over, but they would arch their back and get frozen and allegedly couldn't move. They're paralyzed and they'd be moaning at the same time. 
kind of the George Dillman syndrome? Uh, different, but similar, right? And, and so my friend said to this Japanese instructor, why are they doing that? And part of them was saying, are, are you doing something really special, arcane and incredible? And the teacher turned to him and said, I don't have the slightest idea. <laughs> but he let it go. Right. <laughs> you know, in a sense, yeah. it was like, wow, I got a bunch of idiots who allow me to get them to degrade themselves. I yeah. let them do this. I don't say stop. And I just let it go on. You know, I'd, I'd heard about two, three years ago that that there was another Shiana, I'm not going to name him, but uh, who, I guess, on the mat at a, at a seminar had a similar experience where he felt that his ukes were just performing for him. And he just stopped everything and kind of just berated everybody like, do not be doing this, even though having attended a couple of his seminars in the past, I, f I felt that it was this exact same thing going on. And I actually took Ukemi from him and I had to, to do my, do my Ukemi because what he was doing was not going to, not going to throw me. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm not questioning his skill and talent. I think he's a tremendously talented Aikidoka or at least was, but I almost wonder if over years of dealing with groups who have what I can only describe as like self-hypnosis, of getting into this pattern behavior that does not either make sense or they've been trained into it. How does that affect the instructor? If he says, oh, all these people are performing for me like seals, does that distort his own ability of performing the art? I think it would because, you know, people are going to make your doing technique very easy. In fact, it does itself, but where are your skills as a practitioner going to go? Probably right down the tube. Well, I've got a theory. Uh, Oh, sorry. Let's see. Yeah. No, it's okay. I'll you go. I'll, I'll come in a minute. Um, so we got to take something on faith. And the something you got to take on faith was that Ueshiba Bamurihei was actually a good martial artist. Mm -hmm. um, I'm willing to believe it because a lot of people um, said so who were high-ranking yeah, high people. Um, but I remember reading a quote of Mochizuki Minoru Sensei. In, he was asked, why did you people fly away from Ueshiba when he was doing these movements. And what he said was, because when he grabbed you, it hurt so badly, we were trying to get away from it. Hmm. And Terry Dobson, uh, who was my teacher for a while, describes an incident where he was in attendance with Ueshiba, who was an old man. And there's a phrase which is really true, which is tendon strength is the last thing to go when you get old. Mm -hmm. And so he was just standing there and Ueshiba got mad at somebody and unconsciously grabbed his, just grabbed his wrist. And Terry told me it felt like a red hot wire was rammed through his wrist and it was all he could do to keep from screaming. Hmm. And he, he like stiffened and then Ueshiba sort of looked at him and said, oh, sorry, Teiru-chan. He used to call him little puppy, which is a whole other story. Um, so... Think of this in the classical Japanese context, which Ueshiba played to the max, right? And that's why he was stuck with Takeda for 20 years and couldn't leave because he was very loyal to mm -hmm. and stood up to a tremendous amount of, let's call abuse. Um, the students are not going to say, Sensei, I can't make that technique work. Will you show me the mechanics of how to throw somebody? 
So what the senpai who took Ukemi from Moesha would do is they would make a gesture, the students who were observing, they would take the fall. And this culture of Ukemi grew up that you are responsive to the first touch of the teacher and you put Kazushi on yourself, mm -hmm. right? So in judo, you know, as I'm, I'm, I'm here and, and I get the person to float a little bit and then I do my throw, right? I, but without the kazushi, there's no throw. What happens in Aikido is people will grab and they will put the kazushi on themselves. And then the throw is real. Right. But it's based on the student, a trained reflex. And I think a lot of teachers, if they even think about it, really believe they're creating that. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I agree. And I, if you... I guess, look at the criticisms, which I think there's some very valid criticisms of how Aikido is practiced, what you've, you boil down to find an essential missing component that somebody who wants to use or looks at the idea of using Aikido for self-defense will say, you're not going to find somebody that's just going to give you that Kazushi. It, it's that have you seen Have you seen the film of Mike Tyson and Dick Cavett? Uh, I saw the one with... Uh, uh, so, so Dick Cavett. I don't think I've seen that one. So Dick Cavett was a, a, a lovely man. He was a very intellectual talk show host, very sweet guy. Oh, Tiny I remember guy. Dick Cavett, yeah. And 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 he did a little bit of Aikido mm -hmm. in uh, uh, the New York Aikikai. Hmm. And so he had Mike Tyson on. Mike Tyson was a, long, a young man. Mm -hmm. And on TV, he goes to Mike. He goes, "Grab my wrist." And Mike goes, "Okay." Mm -hmm. And then Dick does like an Aikiyage. Mm -hmm. And he actually picks Tyson up, you know, yeah. unbalances him a slight bit. Mm -hmm. And Cavill was like, isn't this incredible? And I said, huh. And here, do it again. So Dick has to show him again. And then Mike goes, but I don't understand the point. Mm -hmm. He says, nobody would grab your wrist on the street. Mm -hmm. it, you know, it literally, it was, it was beautiful because he wouldn't be in a, he wouldn't be in a butt in any way. He was just saying, this, what I'm asked to do doesn't make sense to me any more than stick your finger up your nose, <laughs> right? Right, yeah. So um, th there is that problem with Aikido when we talk about self-defense. And a lot of times people talk about, well, really powerful Aikido just means you take the Kazushi somebody gets and then you really crunch them. Hmm. And it gets a divorce from the context of how human beings actually interact. I think the components, as Stephen said before, in terms of body body mechanics and effective movement, and if the Aikido technique is used to develop your own ability to remain balanced under stress from different angles, mm -hmm. I think Aikido can really be incredibly valuable training. Yeah, yeah. totally agree. You've you, you you've actually hit on Alice. The, the the one thing that sends me into a, and not a rage, but the one thing that makes me angry in the dojo is if I train, and it's 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 when the anger's maybe too strong a word. One that gets me uh, a bit hot under the collar is if I'm training or teaching someone and they put the kazushi on themselves, or they they come in to take gyaku hand me and then run round me, mm. even though I, I've not moved, but they're already going past me, and I'm like, where the hell are you going? Why are you round there now? Oh, you're back at the front. That was weird. Uh, and it's because it's 
the way I've developed Aikido as I teach it is it's very much grounded in the biomechanics of it. So how I use my body to manipulate your body. What I tell my students is don't try to control your partner, control yourself and through that, exert that control and that redirection over your partner rather than just saying, right, I need you here to do this technique. So you, you have to make that shape work. And it's, it's the one thing that really grinds my gears is, and I, I'm constantly, I find more and more, and I mean more and more, when I get students coming to me that say they've done Aikido before, I have to deconstruct a lot of what they've been taught because they're taught, I grab you and then as you lift your arm, I turn. And I'm like, no, that's not what I want you to do. I, you grab me, then I will turn you. You do not turn for me, I turn for you. I turn you. And if, if I don't turn you, then I need to work out how I do turn you. Otherwise, no one's going to learn anything. And I'm finding it more and more. There's a lot of schools out there. And again, this leads us into that whole other dialogue about um, modern Aikido and where it's going, is that uh, it's seen as disrespectful to upstage your instructor. Uh, we had a, a sixth Dan over here. We don't, I, uh, I don't know if he was a Han Shi or a Shihan or whatever he wanted to call himself, but uh, <laughs> I train with a lot of guys. We've, maybe because we're Scottish, we've got a very practical down to earth approach about this. And this guy he was doing techniques and he was showing things and he wasn't Japanese, he was English, uh, which probably escalated the problem. And um, he, he's doing this stuff and we're all sitting going, yeah, it's not bad, it's okay. But, you know, you could tell they were just moving for him. And he goes, you? And he pointed at one of my students. And immediately, I'm straight out of an 80s movie. In my mind, I'm going, oh, gee. And he pointed at one of my students who was an ex-paratrooper. He goes, you up. And he goes, attack. <laughs> for some reason, he was talking like pigeon Japanese. You, attack. My Ken, face. And I'm like, why is he talking like Mr. Miyagi? You know, but that's what he was doing. And Barry just went, yeah, okay. And Barry, Barry's a boxer. He just ran in there, boom, smacked him, knocked him in his ass. <laughs> and, um, and he got up and he was like, ah, oh, uh, well, yeah, yeah, that was good. And give him his dues. He asked Barry to attack again. And he put a really good technique on Barry. He put a really good Yerimanagi coming from that. But it took him that punch in the face before he started paying attention. And was that because he was too used to people doing what he wanted? Or was it because he was expecting Barry to do what he wanted? We never ever found out. Mm -hmm. The downside to that is he then picked the second worst guy he could have picked, which was one of my other students on the other side of the room. He went from that side of the room to that side of the room. <laughs> but that's that's the way we train is, you know, um, don't, it, it's not hard man training. I'm not saying it's superior training in any way, but we like to have an instigated attack that you must react to either in training yourself to be preemptive or training yourself to be uh, circularly aggressive and proactive with your body when you move. So you can't be there when this punch comes in or this strike or this grab comes in because it's going to immobilize you straight away. You have to react to it. And that's just the way I prefer to teach. But yeah, it brings in that interesting dichotomy of thought is that where did the line get crossed between the instructor getting too used to the sycophants that won't hit them in the face as opposed to the, the people that won't do it out of respect? And you know who's now become lacking? Has the instructor lost their edge or has the student been 
respectful because I, I don't know about anyone here, but I find it quite insulting when someone doesn't actually try to hit me when I'm asking them to hit me. Mm. But you can see the fear in their eyes. Oh, I don't want to hit them. I'm like, I'm, I'm actually asking you to put the punch in or the strike in, you know, and don't don't tell me you're going to do it five times. Showmen, showmen to the head. Coming, it's coming now. Here comes the showmen. You ready? It's coming on this one. Here it comes. <laughs> you know, it's just if you ask to attack, go for it. And uh, per perhaps it's just the way we, that I choose to train is that if you hit me, you hit me. It's a lesson for me. You, you know, obviously don't knock me out. You know, don't go full, full yeah. tilt, you know, raging bull on me. Do you know what I mean? But, uh, you know, if I don't get out of the way, that's my fault because I'm clearly not doing something correctly. Um, but, yeah, it's it's an interesting point where that, that breakdown happens between what the instructor is demanding against what they're actually expecting and what they where the student is willing to go with what's being asked of them or do they want to take it too far it's an interesting dichotomy sometimes well you know it's it bringing us back into the whole concept of etiquette um so the one thing we've talked about is dojo have culture and people find the teacher they're looking for right mm -hmm. and in Speaking for myself, in my own dojo, which are various contexts, because it depends on the martial art I'm doing, things work just fine. When I'm doing Taikyoka do in a garage with my guys in uh, uh, um, uh, California, we're wearing street clothes, we're laughing. Um, any respect I have is based on knowledge or whatever skill I have. Um, and it's a it's a natural kind of respect. Everything works just fine. Now, if I go to another dojo, and I guess the question would be, do I go to the dojo as a teacher or as a student? Mm -hmm. If I go as a teacher, I don't just get on the mat without looking at people. I'm going to look how people interact. I want to look how people are warming up. I want to get a sense of what they view martial arts as. Right. Because it's a two way street. It's not just, well, I'm here to teach something. I don't want to disrespect somebody. I don't want to go into a boxing gym and say, hit me with Shomenuchi. Right. Mm -hmm. And he'd be like, why? That's a stupid punch. Right. Yeah. One of my sons is a boxing uh, retired professional boxer. He's a boxing coach. I, you know, against his jab, I would never dream of doing, say, Irimi Nage. Right, it's just oh, yeah, yeah. very unwise. So, so the first thing is, if I'm an instructor, I should know what is the dojo culture I'm walking into. I want to see how the students relate to their teacher. If it's repulsive to me, I'm going to leave, mm -hmm. or I'm going to say, you know, for this time, this is the way I'd like you to behave. Mm -hmm. Okay, I, I I did a, a, a I was asked to. Uh, teach at a Kodyu dojo in Italy. And I actually was asked to teach one day Arakiryu, which is one of the two Kodyu I do, the next day Bukodyu. The parameters of each are totally different. The body movements are totally different. And everybody there did other martial arts entirely. And so I said, well, I'm going to assume that your relation to your martial art is you're very happily happy with it, just like with a good wife. What I'm offering you this weekend is a cheap and dirty affair. <laughs> For one day, I don't want to hear your wife's name because you're going to break the mood. 
for one day, guilt-free, hang out with me. And by the way, tomorrow, you're going to meet another girl who's going to do things totally different. And on Monday, forget it, deny it, and you'll be just fine. <laughs> now, the real question then comes up, if I'm a student, and, you know, in, in the, if you will, the newest martial art that I, I for me, that I'm doing is the wrestling. And number one, I never, ever try to say to my seniors, hey, here's what I know. Mm -hmm. I'm there to learn. Right. And sometimes I think, well, I do things a little differently. They're occasion, right? Mm -hmm. But nobody should care, right? And, you know, the best I could get is, oh, wow, that's cool, right? And that would inflate my ego a little bit. Now, somebody were to ask me, you know, in the context of stuff that you've done, is there anything you got to add to this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I'm not going to, it's not about, you know, hey, hey, look at me, what I know, because I know mm -hmm. so little compared to these guys in this field. Mm -hmm. The next thing is I'm, I want to really assess what is the teacher's objective when they demonstrate a technique? What are they trying to convey teaching the students? And if I get, so to speak, called out to be okay, my job is to assist him or her in conveying that. If, for example, I find that they're conveying some kind of something that in some ways is, is stupid, aesthetically unpleasing or immoral, I'm probably not going to bust the teacher on the mat unless they were trying to hurt me. I would leave. Right? And I remember writing about this. If anybody knows a, uh, an Aikido teacher who in many ways was a great guy, Watanabe Sensei. Mm -hmm. And when I trained with Watanabe Sensei, not with, when I trained under Watanabe Sensei in the uh, uh, 70s, he was already doing kind of this expansive kind of technique, but there was contact. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while, I would give him, you know, when he, he used to call me out for okay, and I would do exactly what he wanted when he called me out, because it was his mat, his, his rules. But when he would circulate around in teach, I would respectfully test him. And he would laugh and, you know, do whatever. But when he started doing the, you know, the, and you'd look and you're supposed to fly, I just stopped going to his class. Mm -hmm. Because I felt like I would be asked to do something that degraded me. Another person might feel about differently, but I said, I don't, I don't want any parts of that. And it's not my job to fix him. Right. So to me, all of that is part of what we we're talking about etiquette. Part mm -hmm. of my training is if I go to somebody else's dojo is sense, what are the rule? What are the social rules here? And just like walking into a bar and you say, you know, this is not my kind of place. <laughs> I think the same thing applies to a dojo. I, I totally agree. In fact, I, I think this starts to be one of the facets of the answer of why Aikido, especially in the United States, is is has lost a great deal of popularity. Is it it the ritual, the respect has grown into ritual. The ritual as often grows into worship, and it's become so distorted. And I like Stephen's uh, description about when you were talking about the attacks. Obviously, your student did a non-ritualized attack. He did a regular a regular attack. Yeah. 
I, sh I should say, just to get context, I just realised when Ellis was speaking there, I didn't give context, that the, the concept of that course we were on was real Aikido for the street. Hmm. Okay. And his students were not attacking with the vigour. So the, that door had already been opened. <laughs> so mm -hmm. if, if that, you that, get an, yeah, you get an ex-soldier and tell them what you're going to be doing is Aikido for the street and you bring them up, mm -hmm. you know, somebody who fought in the first Gulf War and you tell them, you know, I'm going to show you how to teach real stuff. And then you bring them up and they punch you in the face. You've already opened that door. So I, that, sorry, I just realized that I didn't give the full context and, of that. But that's a it, tremendous you know. story in terms of the, the gap between ritualized attacks that are practiced ad nauseum and then actual attacks and that there's a difference. There's, you know, he was not used mm -hmm. to it and he, he adapted to his credit. He adapted very quickly, but- He did, you know, yeah, oh, very quickly, yeah. <laughs> real situation that would have been too late. The one hit lands yeah. and- that's going to be the beginning of game over pretty much. And so this is to me where it goes back, like we were talking early in the podcast about on the mat, what does ritual and etiquette, how can it be a, a, a be taken too far? And even to the point whether or not it's the creepiness of, of somebody mentally manipulating you as a student, or even how it distorts the physical art because it's gotten a little, it's gotten too uh, stylized or, ritualized or or you know and and i guess the, that respect would be okay i'm your uke i'm not going to thoroughly overwhelm you because you're you you you're not yet trained to handle a, a rigorous attack like the punch your your student through so you're showing respect to your fellow student or your or your your junior by not just blasting them off their out of their socks Mm -hmm. But you don't necessarily train them in the and that at that beginning level as they advance. And I think that's I, I've seen Udancha exams that have, you know, extraordinarily ritualized, very simplistic attacks meant to make Nage look good. And that's that would be my concern is how it distorts the art, as well as the the off-the-mat stuff like having a, an instructor that expects his students to go clean his apartment or wash his car or do his laundry or you know, well, I don't even think of that as etiquette. That that's just, uh, um, you know, it's it's, it's, it's abuse. abuse. It's abuse. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I think the the fundamental question is, what's the purpose of the etiquette? Which is what I think we began talking uh, about. Is is it uh, to learn something about general behavior, human interaction? Is it to learn something about uh, 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 Japanese culture so that we are now educated into another world and can somewhat see through other people's eyes how you can inhabit a body and interact differently? Or is it a means to its own end to, you know, exert power and control of another person because you know the rules and the other person doesn't? Sure. And, you know, I, I have, um, I just read uh, uh, an in-house book of uh, a friend of mine who does another Kodyu, which has very, very strict rules from beginning to end, all the way to how to purify the dojo with Shinto ritual um, if anybody bleeds on the mat. Mm -hmm. And very strict rules across the board. Um, I would not want to be a member of that school, although I've visited it. I tremendously respect the instructor and I really respect what he's doing because from beginning to end, 
It's very open. This is what we do. This is why we do it. Some of these things are 600, 700 year old ritual or even beyond that. And we will maintain it because that's what we do. And if you aren't, if you don't subscribe to this, go elsewhere. You're welcome to go elsewhere. Um, I, that I really respect, even though the level of etiquette is something that I would personally find uh, stifling if I had to do every day. Right. That's no different than looking at somebody else's relationship. And I say, wow, those two people look very happy. I wouldn't want a relationship like that. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. no. Yeah. And I, th I think as well, as uh, as we discussed earlier, it, it depends what people are. If I've, I've said this before. If a, a dojo is open and honest about what it is and people choose to subscribe to what that is, then there is no problem with that. If you are a dojo that, that teaches soft style Aikido that's mostly demonstrative and you go heavily into the ritualized side and you take on board aspects of Shinto or Buddhism within your ritual that you put into your dojo and you're upfront about that, that's fine. It's when the subvertive aspect of it comes in, that's when the problem arises. As long as you're upfront and open about it and that's what people want to subscribe to and that's the people you will attract. If you want someone who's more practical minded and you're all about, we do four claps and then we bow to this and we do this and we do that. And we've got these special brushes to sweep the floor, to clear the air every day. And we burn the incense beforehand. If that's what people prescribe to and that's what people are signing up for. Um, I'm not saying I, I fully advocate that. I certainly wouldn't be comfortable in that environment. But if that's what people want to subscribe to and there is no further ulterior motive hidden within that, then that's fine, each to their own. Uh, however, if you have, and likewise, the people who want that, if they go to a more practical-minded dojo where there's holes in the windows and the wind's blowing through in the middle of winter mm. and there's ice on the ground and you're all slamming each other into it and it's not a good session unless you walk away with it, you know at least one semi-concussed state uh, and things are getting put on harsh, then if people subscribe to that and that's what's advertised, that's fine. Most people want something in the middle, uh, but um, where that difficulty comes in is when you start to take the ritual into the religion aspect of it so that you start to cross boundaries so that, uh, for example, for me, the description you just gave, Ellis, if, if I were to go to a dojo where bowing out of respect and, you know, a bit of a, a mini Shinto start, two hand claps, bowing to Kamiza, I'm fine with that. But once we start crossing into religion that is not my religion that I did not prescribe to, you know, then that makes me slightly more uncomfortable because I start to think, well, what is the purpose? How is this enhancing my Aikido? Or am I just now subscribe, subscribing to borderline, and I don't mean this is what it was, I'm just saying borderline cult-like behavior where this is what we do because this is what the guy at the top tells us we're doing. Well, that's that can be a very slippery slope at, at times. You know, the every cult is easy to see except the one that you're in. And that's yeah. that I think is a, a, a good reminder that it's easy to be drawn into initially uh, not noticing, but having that ever creeping little manipulation after little manipulation that turns into bigger manipulations that one day, maybe if you're lucky, you wake up, you realize, boy, there's a lot of kind of creepy stuff going on here because you account too that when you start to get involved with a group, they may not have advanced their 
practices yet and their rituals, but there that culture can advance as well. It won't be the same uh, in two years necessarily as it is now, um, especially if they they get you know open minds that are easily molded and uh, that having that crowd like we're talking about with the instructor, a couple of years of a bunch of those people can affect the the top mm -hmm. level culture as well. So uh, it always to me it always pays to kind of do a yeah. do a gut check and say is what's going on here what I want to be in uh and is is or am I seeing things that are kind of giving me the willies mm -hmm. that's sort of an instinctual thing too and and not to necessarily discount it you shouldn't you shouldn't be the delicate student that wants everything done their way but on the other hand you know you don't want to be the the mind that's so open that it's empty mm -hmm. and to just be drug along uh with with etiquette gone too far turned into ritual or worship or into the the cult type of of atmospheres mm -hmm. um you know clearly the bonds of training on the mat will will build a, a a sense of community a very strong sense of community or i should say can doesn't necessarily always have to happen but when you have in my experience when you train with people that's a personal uh very personal connection you have with people that are helping you grow and you're helping them grow and so mm -hmm. With those bonds, those should be good, strong bonds, not built on being manipulated or being um, kind of deceived. And I, I, Stephen, you had a perfect there of if if a, a group is honest about what they're doing and this is their interest, uh, you get to choose. Yep, this is what I want to do, or no, nah, that's not quite what I'm into. And you can find somewhere that you that does fit you really well. Um, well, Tristan, I think the the, the the what you just said defines the difference between a cult and a group with what can be odd rituals mm -hmm. um, is the door open right mm -hmm. that's it let, yeah you know uh, uh, I, the rituals can be elaborate they can be pervasive and you can be told look if you don't like to behave this way if you don't want to if you're not down with this you're free to leave mm -hmm. that's not even a cult right if if in any sense, I believe in leaving, I will be damaged or hurt, not the loss of this group, but more than that, you know, or the practice, but that some way I psychologically be damaged, I'm going to be ostracized, I'm going to be cut off from my community, mm -hmm. things like that. Now you're starting to get into a cult. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just a beautiful story, because I've never had a chance to tell it, but uh, um, there's a deceased uh, Aikido teacher named uh, Dennis Hooker wonderful man um I, I love dennis uh he served three tours of duty in vietnam had terrible ptsd but and he had a lot of anger and all sorts of things but he was not a violent man and he was a wonderful aikido teacher he says aikido saved his life uh and he had a student who got enamored of a pretty famous aikido teacher um who had a lot of public face a lot of charisma a lot of beautiful writings and he went off to be uh, an uchideshi to this teacher. And a couple months later, he comes back and he's in tears. He's a 17-year-old kid. And he said, he goes up to Dennis, called him sensei, and he says, sensei, um, I couldn't stay there and he's coming to get me. He's mm -hmm. gonna take me back, would you help me? And so Dennis met this eminent teacher at the airport. And he said, uh, uh, and the teacher was very friendly and said, you know, my student uh, made a mistake and I'm here to take him back home. Uh, 
And Dennis said, well, I have a young man who's afraid of you. And I'm going to give you three choices. The first choice is you come to my dojo. You teach a seminar. I pay you your ordinary seminar fee. And then off you go home. The second choice is you get back on the plane right now and go home. And the third choice is if you don't follow one of the other two choices, I'm going to beat you into the ground. The teacher went back home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everything you hear about this particular instructor, you would say to yourself, wow, this guy has, he's got the, the things we're talking about. He's got a beautiful Japanese context. He doesn't take it too far. Uh, there's a, a social service component, a service to the community. This is an mm-hmm. ideal. You know, with everything we've talked about, we would come upon him and say, well, this is the one. And yet mm-hmm. doing everything to our lights right, he was the one running a cult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that fundamental question is not the aesthetics. Do we like the particular style of etiquette people do or whatever? That fundamental question is, is the door open? Can you leave it mm-hmm. well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, and I agree with you. That's when I when I wanted to take on this kind of elephant in the room topic. One of the things that seemed difficult was to try to cover all of the the horror stories and the types of things that people have have encountered. Because I mean, it runs the the gamut from you know mild little irritating incidents to stuff that makes people quit martial arts and never want to go back to them ever. Like it's a mm-hmm. level, high level of trauma that says, mm-hmm. I just can't even deal with any of that. Um, and, you know, I, I, I feel for those people that have been traumatized by these things, which are taken too far. And if I had a button I could press and have my wish granted, I'd say that those people that victimize their students would, would somehow stop or, or, not be around anymore to cause this ongoing, these ongoing problems. And for those people that have been victimized, uh, which I've known personally, uh, I've encountered personally, um, it's I I have the greatest level of of sympathy for you. And just to if you know that there are others <laughs> out there who say we understand, and you know, hopefully even listening to this maybe can help you realize I'm in a bad place. This is not an environment that I've. I belong in or I should be in and to have the courage to step away and get yourself out of it. Um, it's, it's a tricky thing. I wish we could go into great uh, more depth, but I realize our, our podcast has been going on quite a while. So, um, you know, if there's enough interest, please contact me or, or one of these guys and we can talk about it some more. Or if you want to contact me privately, um, feel free. I've gotten some private messages of some just amazing somewhat even horrifying stories of of this abusive and manipulative behavior and and i wish the martial art community didn't have it in it but i think it it, i know it does and it probably always did and it probably always will um was there anything you you two would like to wrap up with before we go no i'm good i'm good guys i I think we've solved the world here (laughs) 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 yeah well yeah small part um yeah well I, actually just just to get on what you were talking about there tristan is that uh, if anyone is 
going through stuff or finding things difficult or they think that they are being manipulated. Remember, free will is a big thing and that uh, there, there are places you can go for help. Don't be afraid. It takes a lot of courage, but yeah, just step out of those boundaries and, you know, look after yourselves. That's the most important thing. If it doesn't feel right, it's not right. You know, that's the most important. And that goes right through all the martial arts. If something doesn't feel right, it's not right. So, you know, don't be afraid to take those steps to try and correct things for the better. Yeah, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I would guess 99% of our audience is people in Western culture, certainly English speaking cultures. And uh, um, we have fundamental values that we have received from our culture, which are absolutely wonderful. And among them is the value, the intrinsic value of the individual. And I'm not saying that that's exclusive to Western culture, but is one of our core values, even though we fail so many times. And particularly when we enter into culture activity that is alien to us, and we try to conform to that, we can sometimes forget our own value. Uh, I certainly went through this uh, when I live in Japan. And you can forget yourself in attempting to conform to that other culture. And there should be nothing in our study of another cultural activity, martial arts or otherwise, that should in any way cause us to violate our own core values or our own integrity. And I think that should be the touchstone. Uh, not, you know, how weird the particular ritual might be in a dojo. Uh, the, it can be something as sim simple as religion. And you can say, based on my religion, I do not bow to foreign gods, for example. Mm -hmm. Well, this isn't the place for you. It's, uh, it, it, it's, well, you know, I need a reasonable accommodation. Everybody else bows to the kamiza, I won't bow. Nah, you just mm -hmm. say, this isn't my place. You're mm -hmm. welcome to it, right? Just, is, just keep that as a hallmark. You walk in with your integrity and your practice should enhance and increase your integrity in any degree it diminishes it then it's not the place for you yeah sure yeah excellent points um gentlemen i really enjoyed this discussion i think this we could go on for another hour or two easily <laughs> um, we've covered a lot of stuff and this is a big topic i think that has it's like a spider web it's it spreads out and affects so many different other things whether it's how we train how we view our our students our dojo the organization that we're in if we're if we are in one um it's it's something to think about and and the martial martial art training should be a positive influence in your life and if it's not maybe looking for a, a way to change it so that it is is due um i know i've been in it all of my life because it has been a positive influence although i've had times where i have had to get out of a situation or out of a an association that i felt was toxic and um and i know i'm not alone in that <clears throat> So to those people out there that may be in it, we understand, again, like Stephen said, you know, reach out, we'll try to help you as much as we can, but realize that you, you have support, you're not, you're not alone. And, and I think that the Japanese culture tends to overlook that respect for the individual. And they, they do tend to have a, you know, the, the, the collective is where the, the focus is. And, you know, if there's one thing, uh, I think that, although there, any group, there has to be 
individual respect towards the organization. You help clean the dojo, you help the other students, you're there for the, the, the group itself, but not to the point where you're sacrificing individuals or individuals feel like they're being um, ground up and, and, and chewed up and spit out uh, for the sake of the group. But um, I know we could cover a lot, but gentlemen, thank you again for, for coming and, and engaging in this discussion. It was really fantastic to have you both here. Yep. Thank Pleasure. You. All right. Well, take care. And until the next show, uh, enjoy your training. Bye-bye. Cheers, guys. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this discussion. Stay tuned for more episodes. I've got some great stuff on the way very soon. In the meantime, enjoy your training.